One of the most insightful and downright entertaining narratives in the New Testament can be found in chapter 17 of Acts. Luke, who is also the author of a gospel, tells us about the martyrs who spread the faith in the wake of Jesus' ascension into heaven. In chapter 17 of Acts, verses 16 to 34, we hear about Paul's stay in Athens. We're given a vivid description of Athens, and we see Paul deliver the gospel to the people whom he finds there. Paul first characterizes the people of Athens as being very religious, albeit pagans. He then describes the problems with worshiping idols. He then calls for the people there to repent. We are concerned with the uh, second section of this story, his condemnation of the pagan practices of the people of Athens. But first, here's some context. Much of the architecture and the art of the people of Athens at this time centered around their religion. So Paul would have been surrounded by religious statues, altars, and temples, he would have met people who were members of the two primary philosophical schools, the Epicureans and the Stoics. We're told that Paul debated these people. Epicurus taught his followers that there's no possibility that the soul survives after death and that there is no afterlife. He believed that people should, in life, seek sustainable pleasure, and the absence of any sort of pain. On the contrary, Stoicism tells us that people should endure pain, fear, hardship, hunger, any sort of suffering, without complaint or emotion. Paul is mocked. He's called a, quote, babbler. They say that Paul is talking about foreign divinities when he talks about Jesus and the resurrection of Christ. Apparently, some of them think that Paul's talking about two different gods. One is Jesus and the other is a resurrected being, and this second one might be female. Paul is then taken, perhaps against his will, we're not sure, to the Areopagus. This refers to both a geographic area as well as the ruling council, and apparently it is to the council that Paul is taken. These people would have been in charge of deciding if Paul's to be allowed to speak in Athens, various public forums. Here's the beginning of our passage. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the Unknown God. In the tradition of orators of that time and place, Paul is standing. He begins wisely on a positive note, pointing out that the people of Athens are clearly very religious. 
But the word that he uses to say that they're religious can also mean that they are superstitious. Although Paul is in truth incensed by the array of idols and pagan statues that he sees, he's being diplomatic. He's trying to win followers to Christ, not start a religious war. He then says that he happens to have noticed an altar that had on it an inscription saying, To the unknown God. There is, by the way, no known artifact that would match this description. What we know of the ancient Greek culture and religious practices however, would indeed make it quite possible that such an altar existed. Paul then says, What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us, for... In him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Paul's telling the people of Athens that he can do them a great favor. He can tell them who this unknown God is. He first says that this God, which is now spelled with a capital G, God, is our creator of the world and everything in it, and that this God will not be found in a temple made by humans. He's also not cared for by humans as he gives life to everything that breathes. None of this goes directly against Greek beliefs. Paul is couching the biblical story of God in terms that are true to Hebrew scriptures, but in a way that will not upset those to whom he's speaking. Then Paul makes an oblique reference to the Adam and Eve story of Genesis. He adds that God has commanded all descendants of Adam to seek out God. Interestingly, Greeks, in particular Stoics, did believe that all people derive from a common ancestor. Paul says that God cares for all people. It's not known what Paul's referring to when he talks about, quote, periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. He might be referring to the natural four seasons and the specific places on earth that support human life. It's likely that whatever he did mean, this part was added because it would appeal to the Greeks before him, who are philosophical people, comfortable with this sort of language. Paul then turns toward a critical concept. Why God created us. He says that we're children of God, and in God we find our single purpose for existing. 
he finishes by telling us that God is not like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. At this point, Paul is finally challenging the beliefs of many of these people. What do we take from this? First of all, Paul reminds us that we should worship a God who made us in his image, not a God we make in our image. Keep in mind that Greek art and architecture was filled with images of their faiths. They created, they bought, they lived among things that they felt were worthy of worship. We do that today. It's just that we worship a broad class of things, technological devices, fancy vehicles, big homes, designer clothing, jewelry, and in fact, a continuous stream of things that are marketed to us as necessary for our self-respect. We need these things, we tell each other, if we want to be happy, satisfied, and secure. The things we make are supposed to give us the same kind of joy and solace that our ancestors got from God. Furthermore, Paul tells us that there is no unknown God. There is, in fact, only one God. God created us for a reason. We're not accidental, the product of random and uncontrolled events. Very importantly, here's what comes next after our passage. Paul continues to speak to the members of the council, saying, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of this resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Paul now confronts these people. He tells them things that they will not agree with. God, the God whom they thought was unknown, commands all of us to repent. We're to stop being greedy and hateful. God will judge us through the hands of a man whom God rose from the dead. At this point, some of the Greek listeners mock him, but others conclude that they want to hear more about this God. Paul then goes out among the people, gaining followers of Christ, by being diplomatic in his approach, by using terms that would be comfortable to his listeners, He has drawn them in and won them over. Paul proves in this passage that he is an incredibly astute evangelist. There's something subtler and very powerful in this story. Some Christians have argued over the centuries that 
God has chosen well in advance who's going to be saved. This is called predeterminism. Methodists do not believe in this. John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement, was an Anglican priest. I happen to be a Methodist reverend. He believes strongly that predeterminism runs counter to the notion of God's grace and love. He believed that all people receive the grace of God and all people have the opportunity and the ability to respond to it. I believe this. In our passage, Paul's treating these pagan people in Athens the same way he would treat anyone. That's because a fundamental principle of our faith is that while God is indeed sovereign and is in control of everything, God freely gives each of us a choice about what we will believe and how we will act. Ignoring people who, because there's something wrong with their brains, are not able to control their actions, we are all fully capable of following Jesus' two big commandments. One, love God with all your heart and mind. And two, love your neighbor as yourself. In our passage today, Paul's telling us that all that's holding some people back is that no one has yet introduced God to them. People deserve to be treated with respect, as Paul treated the Athenians. But still, folks need to have open hearts and minds. Here's what happens right after our passage. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, and he tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood will be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. Shaking out his garments would have been a recognizable symbolic act to the Jews around him. Jews would shake the dust off their feet or off their clothes when leaving a pagan or a corrupt area. Paul goes from Athens to Corinth. The two cities are about 65 miles apart. Paul stays with a couple who had moved to Corinth because the emperor had purged Rome of its Jewish population. Paul occasionally earned money as a tent maker while he was on his evangelistic travels, and as Aquila and Priscilla were also tent makers, Paul was able to stay and work with them. Paul went to the local synagogue every Sabbath, and he preached to both Jews and Gentile Greeks. Paul is joined by two assistants, Silas and Timothy. Paul discovers that the Jewish people of Corinth are not open to learning about Christ. Notice that it says that he preached that the Christ was Jesus. 
Christ means anointed one or Messiah. In other words, he was telling the Jews of that city that Jesus was the long-awaited Jewish Messiah, that while Jesus did not form the expected earthly empire, he did indeed usher in a new kingdom, a spiritual kingdom. It turns out that the Jews did not take this news well. We can imagine why. To the Greeks in Athens, Jesus was a reasonably neutral topic, and God with a capital G meshed okay with their existing beliefs. But telling these Jews who had just been expelled from their home city because they were Jews, well, it's not surprising they reviled Paul. Paul reacts angrily in a fashion that's not at all diplomatic. He seems to be addressing the Jews of Corinth in a far more naive fashion than the very diplomatic way he preached to the pagans of Athens. Perhaps it's because Paul himself is a Jew, and so he's blinded to the fact that they're not accepting Jesus as readily as he did. Also, Jesus came to him on the road to Damascus. The Jews of Corinth haven't had such a personal visit. It seems here that Paul is being a bit of a bonehead. The result was that he swore off preaching to Jews as a whole. One major lesson is that we should emulate the Paul of Athens, not the Paul of Corinth. One thing that I've learned as a chaplain in a hospital is to meet people where they are. If you want to connect with someone, if you want to gain their trust, then do not ask them to come to you. Do not ask them to meet you halfway. Meet them where they are in their space. We as believers are in this world for a reason. The grace of God, a gift offered to all but accepted only by some, gives us a calmness that others do not have. The world and our nation are filled with people doing evil things that are extremely difficult to comprehend. But we pass God's grace on to others. We meet people on their ground. We are empathetic, kind, and respectful. We regret our mistakes and we move to undo them. Most of all, we have a sense of peace that burns through all the chaos that surrounds us.